Hey team of Eternal Optimists, it's Matt Drinkon here. And before we launch into today's epic conversation, I've got a big announcement. Drum roll, please. My brand new book is coming out on March 8th. And perhaps even better news, you can get it for only 99 cents on Amazon that day. We don't run ads on the show. And if you ever want to give back and support the Eternal Optimist community, go to Amazon on March 8th and get the Kindle version for only 99 cents. Just search for the book title, The Eternal Optimist. It's never too late. And you can download it directly to your device. Now, let's get to the show. Welcome to another episode of the Eternal Optimist Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Drinkon, and I am here with Ronica Cleary. Ronica, she's humble. She's not going to say this, but I'm going to say it. She's famous. She's a celebrity in the journalist circles. She's badass because we just started talking and she just gave me an authentic dose of her. So get ready for a great conversation today with an award-winning journalist, Ronica Cleary. Ronica, how are you today? Hi, Matt. I'm doing really well. Thank you so much for having me today. Real pleasure. When you say you're doing really well, what do you mean doing really well today? Why do you say that today? Pretty basic things that a lot of people can't always say I'm healthy. I have three healthy children. I'm married and my husband's healthy. My parents are alive. I turned 40 this year and I really, I had a moment where I said I have both of my parents still on the planet at 40 years old. There were times I wasn't sure that would happen. So I think I'm doing pretty well. Awesome. I love that. I'm hearing gratitude throughout your answer. I just super appreciate that about you already. And if we had to just start with what are a couple of bullet points that our listeners might want to know about you to frame our conversation today? Number one, your point about gratitude, that is a very important part of my life. I think it's essential. So gratitude is a part of my daily mantra and living. But some of the things that you were kind enough to mention in my intro, the characteristics for my career that identify me as well. I am a former White House correspondent. I don't think I won any awards when I was a journalist. You said award-winning, and I feel like I'm compelled to correct you, but I was a White House correspondent. I'm an award-winning publicist, so I'm going to hold on to that and be not only filled with gratitude, but also truthful and try to not mislead people, even though that's such a small little detail that doesn't matter, but it helps me put my head on the pillow at night. I'm a former White House correspondent. I run a PR agency. I am a working mother of three. I always say entrepreneurship and motherhood are not for the faint of heart. And I'm married to my husband. I met him when I was 20 years old and we're still together. So, (laughs) Wow. Half your life. Oh, that's so cool. So cool. And I so appreciate that you corrected me. And I find that many journalists, they actually don't go deep into details and you find the granular details. And that makes me love you even more because I love the granular details. This is great to hear someone that's going to hold me accountable to the detail. They'll go into details about other people. (laughs) They're happy to take apart other people's lives, but they don't really like to take apart their own. That I think is the thing you'll find with a lot of journalists. I just figured I'm still really proud of my journalism career and not winning any awards is badge of honor because I think I was pretty good. Mm-hmm. Let's start off and I'd love to walk through a timeline of your career because you've been in television. Those of us who have not been in are super curious about some of the highs, some of the lows, just the things that go into being on TV. So if you could take us back in the time machine, take us back to when you first got into television and what was your origin story there? So Matt, my candidly, 
my story for TV is like a fairy tale. I was very lucky and it's like a storybook. I think one of the key takeaways that you follow the thread of this when I share this story is really listening to your gut. And I think there's been times in my life where I've lost my way there and lost my intuition. But through this story, I was definitely in touch with my gut. So I went to grad school to pursue a career in television. I did co-ops in TV and I did the co-ops and I hated them. And I said, I'm not doing this. I'm not moving to a small market miles and miles away from my family. I'm not turning my life upside down. And I remember my mom said, but I thought this is what you wanted. How old was I in my early 20s? Because I was in grad school, maybe 23, 22, 23. And I said, don't worry, mom, I'll work in TV one day. And that's like the first listening to my gut. I had no doubt. I was fully confident. And the odd thing was I was going to do nothing to pursue it. I don't necessarily recommend that. I I did different jobs, odd jobs. I started a business then because I've always been entrepreneurial, but it was half effort. Fast forward about six years later, maybe less than that. I don't know. A handful of years later, I was at an event and one of the people who came and spoke to us when I was in grad school about working in TV bumped into me at this networking event. And I said, you look really familiar. And he said, you look really familiar. And he said, oh, we put it together. Oh, it's from that class at Drexel. I went to Drexel University. I'm a big fan of Drexel and for grad school. And so he said, I'm creating this television show. Do you want to audition for it? And I'm brighter than bushy-tailed. And I said, yeah, sure, of course. And the hilarious thing, we laugh about it. I go home and I tell my husband and my husband is that guy is not going to put you on TV. He's a scam. That's a scam. Like people don't get picked up at a networking event to go, you better be careful. Like you understand where my husband's head went. Like he's thinking, this guy isn't real, but he was real. And I auditioned for the show and I got on the show and I ended up on a TV show that aired in New York City, Philadelphia, and across the state of New Jersey on the pilot, launched the show, worked on it for years, like became a political reporter, covered the Christie administration, covered him as RGA chair. I covered him. I covered the governor's race before he became RGA chair. And then his start of running for president. And you have to understand this was a show based in New Jersey, but aired in New York City and Philly. So that was, he was at that time, politics aside for personal preference, he was a national player. You want to talk about just being in the right place at the right time. And then I won't get into too many more details, but From that show, I got picked up and brought down to Washington, D.C. to be a political reporter at the Fox affiliate in Washington. And I was given a show to host on Sundays, right? See, it was just crazy. And then President Trump wins and local news reporters are not White House correspondents, right? That doesn't happen. I'm sitting at my desk. When you work in a newsroom, there's TVs at every desk. TV is part of your life. There's a TV in my office, right? You're not being responsible. You're doing your job. So I'm watching a press briefing at my desk because I'm still the political reporter, but I'm like, I'm not going to be at the White House. I'm local reporter. And I get a call from the desk and it's our news director. And he says, why aren't you in that room? And I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> what well, In what room? In the White House room? In the White House briefing room. And what? Wow. And he goes, you figure out how to get in there. By that Monday, you know, you call people, you figure it out, you have friends. And by that Monday, I was in there. And within two months, I was an official White House correspondent, member of the White House Correspondents Association. 
cover was in that room for Sean Spicer and Sarah Huckabee Sanders. I was in the Rose Garden for press briefings with foreign leaders. It was incredible. That's what I mean about a fairy tale. Things that happened in my life that don't usually happen to people with the jobs that I had. And the fact that I didn't pursue it when I was in grad school and somehow it still came back in my life. And I had that trust and that faith that it would because I knew that was part of my destiny. And I knew it was work I was meant to do. And I knew that I would be good at it and talented and could bring something to the conversation. Mm-hmm. My career in TV was really special. And I'll pause there because I'm sure you have questions. I want you to lead the conversation, but I feel to that first point, a lot of gratitude for the career that I had in the time that I had been. Wow. So many questions pop up. What an amazing story. It is a fairy tale. You went out, you started your own business, you did this and that, and then you came to that dinner networking, and now you're on TV at a major market right there. I guess the first time when you were on this television show in Jersey, Philly, and New York City, the first time that you were on air doing the show, what was that very first minute of recording like for you? Any butterflies or anything that you can recall from that very first day of recording? Here's the truth, right? That the funny thing happens with TV, and this is true probably for anything, you have great expectations. And then the show comes and goes and like nothing happens. You realize that like most things are not an overnight success. And that's true for anything. Mm -hmm. You always watch, and as an entrepreneur, you watch other entrepreneurs or you watch people that sell their businesses or whatever. And you, it's so easy to romanticize what it is. I'm sure I was a little nervous. It's funny. We have this great picture from the first show, but I remember they didn't air my story in the first show. The show was called Chasing New Jersey. It was later rebranded to show to be called Chasing News. We were basically a casted group of reporters, all very different the idea was to do news differently. And there were, I think, eight of us. And we would shoot stories on cell phones and GoPros. And we were supposed to put ourselves in the stories. It was like a TMZ for local news and was supposed to change the way local news was told. And then we would bring our story back to the newsroom. We would present it. And then we'd have a conversation about it. I do remember the first episode, my story didn't air. So you tell all these people to watch it. And then you're like, you're just... Not even in it. Probably a little (laughs) bit of a letdown, but greatness doesn't come in like an episode, right? It was a great lesson in, I look back at my time at the show and I'm extremely proud of it. I have so many things to show for it and friendships and meaningful relationships. But man, what was one night going to be anyway? You'd be really foolish to think like one episode would change your life, but years of episodes really do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you for diving in. Man, what a letdown. I imagine if I'm on TV or on the news, whatever that does happen, it's rare when it does happen. I tell everyone, hey, watch this. So, oh, man, I can't believe that they didn't air your first show. Back there, Monica, what is this? What did we spend time? What are we doing? I don't know. It's very Who cares? One more question around that period on your first show. What's a story that you may have created or covered that you still remember to this day that's had an impact on you over the years? I could go a lot of ways with this story. The show was wild, okay? It was really, reinventing news is an understatement. And so I think 
if I want to talk about the most meaningful stories in my career, I, I, I don't know that I could pick just one, but I went to one of the first Trump town halls in New Hampshire. So they would fly me places. And that was before he was even taken seriously. And that's just one example. But I think now that I'm talking through it, the very cool thing about local news or any news, really, you're on the ground of things when you have the opportunity before they become viral, you have the time to only cover this beat. So the beat becomes your life where the world, it's not their life. And so I think it's really cool. Like I used to also cover the Chris Christie town halls and your listeners are probably from all over the country, but that was a big thing in the state of New Jersey. I think I've been to a hundred Chris Christie town halls, maybe 50, but I've been to so many. So when you're sitting there, every detail you see all of the nuance and what's been covered 10 times, you start to put together like what matters to people? What do they keep asking? And then the coolest part of it all is then you decide what is told in three minutes, right? So I don't know that answers your question exactly, but I think the the best part of the storytelling and news is that it's all up to you, right? And that can give you a big head. And I think that's why some journalists are disliked because you lose sight of the reality and all be all, but I can see how it happens because you're the one that goes to a two hour event and then you decide what the listeners and the viewers see because they don't have the time to do that. It just changes you, but it's really cool. And I think if you don't let yourself get a big head, it's incredible. And The only thing I will say, sometimes it's hard to have conversations with people because your whole life is this like one person or one beat or one thing. And then you're supposed to go to a cocktail party and talk about the weather. You're like, I can't talk about anything else. I was thinking of some stories that are just wild that I don't think we need to get into. But I think that answer more speaks to the type. Well, uh, can we get into one of them or one that's on the fringe of wild? Something from the day that really anchors in the mind? Yeah. Okay. There's an expression in TV news. It's called pics or it didn't happen. So if you don't have pictures or images or video, we will never cover it. Okay. When you pitch a newsroom, if there is something extremely visual or something that the reporter can do with the source or story, they, it's almost definitely a yes, because we need those pictures or it didn't happen. So one time I covered, this was before I was in a politics beat. This is when I was general assignment. I covered an awake breast augmentation. And I am in the operating room with the doctor and the woman. And she's got a like a sheet up here. Almost, yeah. And I'm on this side of the sheet with her head and the doctor's on the other side doing the surgery. And I swear to you, I am interviewing her with my cameraman. We're talking back to the newsroom. They're asking her questions. It's unbelievable. Unbelievable. It was like ridiculous. So. My stomach is turning a little bit like I'm a little bit queasy thinking about like she's getting cut over there and you're talking to her over here. I asked her, wow. I remember telling my producer, my executive producer, I'm like, I have this story. And he's, yes, you have to do that. Like, you, you, of course you have to go. You have to do that. Yes. Wow. How do you get used to the nerves of asking challenging questions or just being out there and trying to come up with questions and, and figure things out? How did you normalize that and become comfortable with that? Number one, I don't think it matters. When you do public speaking, I did public speaking. I taught public speaking before I worked in TV in those years where I was bouncing around. I think one of the greatest things that we can learn is that the things each of us say are not that important. No one's listening that closely. That can remove the fear. And everybody's asking questions. People are half listening. Your question is fine. You're smart. 
if you make a mistake, it doesn't matter. No one remembers. I really have a strong belief in this concept of being perfectly adequate. I know you said you have perfectionist listeners, but I think the idea of something being perfectly adequate is essential like to carrying you through life. Because when you get so caught on perfection, it becomes counterproductive. And so when you're worried about a question is perfect, there is no such thing as a perfect question. The question needs to be perfectly adequate. And that is all you need to carry you through the day. That doesn't mean I don't believe in doing great work and being proud of your work. And I learned that from my executive producer at Chasing News. I don't want to take credit for it, but that principle is life changing. And that doesn't mean you're never like a little nervous or something, but when you really step back and look around and you're like, that question was perfectly adequate. You know what? My question is perfectly adequate. Let's move on and ask the question and get our jobs done. Let's not get stuck in fear of perfection and do nothing. So I think that kind of really helps. And that was a nugget of pure gold. Thank you. That was fantastic. So perfectly adequate, uh, a great frame. I've never heard that before. That's a great, great frame. Thank you. I give credit Uh, to my old executive producer, Jerry. He used to teach us that. I'll never forget it. And I teach other people that. Yes. Another question, moving forward to the White House correspondence days. And I'm super impressed, by the way, when the boss said, figure out a way to get in that room and you did it. It just shows you can figure stuff out. Kudos to you, my friend. That's awesome. How about the first time you're in that room and there's all these big like public figures in there and you get to ask your first question? Was there any nerves or anything you can take us back to that day and share your experience? Yes. So that's funny. That room was wild. That was a wild experience. And I was in there during a time that it will probably never be like that again. I remember, I mean, the White House briefings used to air on C-SPAN and no one watched them, right? And then suddenly you're in a, suddenly you are now in a room that's standing room only, shoulder to shoulder. And so while I don't want to say that some of the big names, I think intimidating is the wrong word, but it certainly is a news person. It's, It's very exciting and you feel extremely Awesome. I don't know if proud's the right word, but you're like, wow, I'm in here too. But you're also standing next to a bunch of people you never saw in your whole life from random outlets that you never heard of. So in a weird way, to me, it took some in the fear out of it because maybe if I was in one of those seats and the room was pretty empty and it's only the most famous people on the biggest networks in the world, then you're like, oh my gosh, but now you're just in there. Everybody's climbing over each other. There's no room to breathe. So I think it was, you were just so desperate to get a question because you need to get questions or your boss is going to stop sending you, right? There's no time to be afraid. There's no time to worry. You just have to ask questions. Now, here's the thing about that time. I don't know if you're a news junkie or if you recall, but at that time, they would carry those briefings on every station. Like they would stop programming to carry them on all the cable networks, everybody, live people, live tweeting, every question that gets asked, you have the peanut gallery of the world, like weighing in, was that question good? Was it bad? This and that. So my most memorable moment in there for all the questions I asked, I like to think some, I had some good questions in there, but I want, Sean Spicer had called on me twice or three times and he called me Veronica Maybe, I don't know if it was the first time. I don't know when it was, but he says, yes, Veronica, because it's their job. If you're in that briefing room and you have a hard pass, we're 
doing a service and they are obligated to provide that service. They should want to know the names of the people who have, it's called a White House hard pass. That means you are a named member of the White House Correspondents Association. You are a part of the group. You're not in there by accident. You didn't kick and scream your way in. And so to Sean's credit, even though I'm the local news gal, I'm going to call her by name. But guess what? My name is not Veronica. My name's Veronica. So my whole life, I politely correct people. And I say, that's Veronica. So you're in that room. You're not watching across America. You're just there. And I'm like, this is my chance to talk to Sean. And so before my question is going to be asked, I'm going to politely correct him and say, thanks so much, Sean. Just so you know, my name is actually Veronica with an R. And, then, and he goes, okay, thanks, Veronica. It's a very cordial <laughs> non-politically charged, no one, it's not journalists against politicians, none of that. The Twitterverse took it that way and I'm just blowing up and they're like, what? You kill him, you get him, he should know your name. And I'm just like, oh my gosh, I'm just trying to do my job here. So that's not a memorable like question that I asked, but I'll tell you, it was just funny when, when news is so device today, and charged and I'm sitting there and then suddenly for just a moment, maybe five minutes, then I'm in it. Like I was picking a fight and all I was doing was just trying to like correct him on my name. So that was just a very funny memory where I'm thinking I'm getting all these comments and people are like, you get them. This is so weird. I don't know. I'm with you. I'm with you from someone whose name is chronically misspoken. Drink on. (laughs) Everyone says it wrong. Everyone spells it wrong. You know, so I'm with you, and it doesn't seem in, impolite or mean or politically divisive. Thank, hey, thanks, Veronica. It's drink on. Thank you. That doesn't sound like it would be the viral uh, tweet of the day, but you know what? You're in the White House Correspondence Association. You're in the room. And that's the thing, too, when I talk about the perfectly adequate, like what you also realize when you're being watched under a microscope, even if something is perfect, like you could argue, like an etiquette, A person could have watched that exchange and said, that was perfect. That was polite. And both parties respected each other. And then the world through some microscope decides to turn it into something else. And I also think that's why I go back to the idea of like not holding yourself up to this standard of perfection because perfection is really defined so differently by everybody that you can't get so caught up in it because you still won't please everybody. It's just frugal. It's, It's a fool's errand. But yeah, I asked a handful of questions in there and I made some wonderful friends. And I also met a lot of people that I wasn't too fond of. And I wrote a piece about my time in the White House Correspondents Association for USA Today. And when I left the the White House and my job in journalism, and I'm very thankful for the highs and lows of it, because it's not like that today. People aren't stopping in the middle of the day to watch the briefings. Now you have your traditional sort of political wonks and people who love it, which I think is great. But that was such a unique time in American history when I got to a part of that history in just a small little way. And I'm so thankful my news director called me at that desk today and told me to figure it out and that I didn't let it scare me and that I figured it out and I got in there. Yeah. Oh, I love it. You, you have this tenacity just to go and, and figure it out. And I love the way that you can be, I have a mindset of perfectly adequate and be really into the detail and be like super focused because you have both those. I I appreciate that about you. And And I I, don't think they're counter. I don't. Yeah. They're complimentary, if anything. Yes, I think so too. And make you succeed more. 
Absolutely. I'm curious, as you transitioned from you know, the White House Correspondent Association into running your practice now, I'm curious about how your identity shifts over time as you go from a TV show, local news, White House, to what comes next. Can you talk a little bit about shifting identity and what that was like it's been like for you, Ronica? So that was very hard. I believe, like I said in the beginning, I believe in gratitude and all of being optimistic and all that, but I really struggled. I couldn't really articulate why I struggled so much, but as time went on and as I started to get through it, I understood why I was having such a hard time. So, you know, when you're in television, remember how I said it's hard to sometimes have conversations with people, especially when you're a beat reporter, because it is your life. It is all you do. It is all you think about. You don't want to take vacations because... I was home on vacation. This still haunts me. The one day Anthony Scaramucci led the press briefing when he was press comms director, 10 days, I was home in New Jersey that day with my parents. I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm not in there right now. And that's why you don't want to take vacations. You don't know what you're going to, I mean, I I still regret that. How silly is that? I'm like, oh, I missed that stupid briefing. I wasn't there. How could I take (laughs) off vacation? How could I not have known that he was going to show up that day? When it is your life, it is your identity. And the thing is, whether or not people think of it as prestigious, everybody knows it. Anywhere you go, you could say, I'm a White House correspondent. And people know what that is. They may have different takes on it. They may view it differently, but there's no question of that. When work is very important to you, That gives you an identity very quickly and very easily. For me, I was very proud of. So then I leave and I always wanted to have a company and be an entrepreneur. But what I didn't anticipate is no one knows what Cleary Strategies is. Nobody knows what half the people don't know what public relations is or PR. People in my family that have been running this business for over five years and they love me. They care about me deeply. And they say, can you explain to me what you do? Uh, (laughs) Yes. It was very jarring and unnerving when so much of what is important to me is my work. And then to suddenly have work that is equally challenging, if not more challenging, if not more fulfilling. And But to not have that ability to have any sort of validation from third party, like a third party, if you will, to say, oh, that's really cool. And what you learn is, I don't know if this is coping or if this is growth. It's probably a little bo- of both. But what you learn is that really doesn't matter and that you have to find that validation internally. And if I had never left TV, I probably would have never had that experience because you didn't need to. So I really had a struggle of identity over the first probably 18 months after I left TV because who am I if I'm not somebody that the world would know what that is? What does it mean to run strategies? What does it mean to just, oh, are you a working mom? Are are you a mom with a hobby? Oh, that's, oh, you're, oh, why are your kids in daycare? Don't you stay with them? I have a job. Oh, what's your job again? What is that? That's where when you're, oh, of course you're a White House correspondent. How do you do it all? How do you manage it? It's like, everyone's so impressed. And you lose all of that. And that was very painful. Thank you for sharing that openly. I totally appreciate that because I've had the same thing in the same, even to this day, 10 years into running a thriving coaching business. And still people ask me, what do you do? What is that? Is that a job? Is that a career? Yep. I'm like, yes, I coach world famous people that you follow online right now. And they don't get it. I'm with you. Yes. And the identity shift is such a touchy one because when you have a great day at work, 
you're on cloud nine. And when you don't, when you have a poor day, you could be like down in the dumps, you take it home with you. It's the identity tied to work is challenged, especially when you switch or evolve into your next career. Right. right. So thank you. Now that we have teed it up, I'd love to talk about Cleary Strategies and share with the world what it is that you help people overcome and how you serve us now, Veronica. Love to talk about it, hear about it. Thank you. I joke that it's called Cleary Strategies and not Cleary Public Relations because I didn't know I'd be running a PR agency five years later. I don't think I really knew exactly what I would do. I knew that I love communication. I love writing. I love storytelling. I do love media and television. And I thought that media and television, helping people navigate media, I thought that would be one small piece of the pie of what I offered. But what I realized is, based on my skill set and my background and what people were looking for when they would come to me, that concept of navigating the media, earning media coverage, getting press was the most daunting to people and the thing they thought I could provide for them the most. And I'm good at it. It basically became the whole pie. We do crisis management, but again, that's still crisis management through the lens of media, right? We're not doing, we pretend not to do an internal crisis uh, audit or crisis comms. We would be doing if you're getting anticipating bad press. So really the whole pie is navigating the media through either positive press or increasing positive press or reducing or diverting negative press. And the cool thing with the idea of identity, I think I really started to get over that that crisis when my business became all about media again. Because today, I work with newsrooms every day and reporters and producers, and I help get my clients' media coverage for their expertise or their story or their brand, whatever it may be. And I put them on television or my team puts them on television or gets them on a podcast or gets them in a magazine or whatever it is. And suddenly it was like, wow, did I figure this out? Did I figure out how to still work with news and TV and media that I loved so dearly, but pick my kid up at the bus stop and not put on makeup every day? Jackpot. It took me a while to get to that because my clients directed my business. That's what we were good at. That's what they wanted. And I'm like, oh, I guess we should have been Cleary Public Relations. I remember one day I woke up, I said, I think I'm a publicist. I didn't plan for that. But in finding that new identity, I've really found a lot of joy. And I love the fact that I still go to newsrooms and I sometimes take my clients to their TV hits and I still get to be on sets. And I still get to have this connection to news that I I did love for all of the lows and the challenges. I loved my time in television. And now I still get to be a part of it. And now it's on my terms. And I've always wanted to be an entrepreneur and I get to run this business and help other people figure out how to get on TV and people don't know how to do it, but we do. It's really cool. And I don't feel like I have that loss of identity anymore. I feel like I know who I am and it's really good. Awesome. Awesome. I feel that there's an inner peace or inner clarity that you found and you're doing what you love and... You're five years into it now. I'm curious, now that you're five years into running your business, who might be the avatar of your ideal client, like the person or team that you serve? So we work with two main types of, two verticals and types of clients. The first would be people who want to be considered experts or thought leaders. And we throw authors in there too. 
the idea is we are industry agnostic. What we are okay. looking for is the common thread. Is the topic or area of expertise that you bring to the table something that would be covered on TV? So that is the factor that needs to be consistent. So I always joke, if they talked about public relations on TV, publicists would be putting themselves on TV all the time. If you think about it, we're the one, we know how to get on TV, but we're never on. That's not because we don't want to be. That's because there's no space in the media conversation to sit down and chat with the publicist. That doesn't go on. So we can't force a topic that just doesn't exist in news. But if you're a doctor, a lawyer, a financial expert, a home organizing expert, a life coach, whatever, those topics happen on TV. So I am industry agnostic there. I just know that they happen on TV. Oh, and then they also probably happen on there's interviews and magazines and podcasts and radio and all that other stuff comes in there. But our differentiating factor as an agency is that we're really good at getting our clients on TV. And then the other type, the other vertical would be a brand looking to earn press with a focus on the founder's story. So the idea is they're small to midsize where the founder is still part of selling the product. And we can book that founder to tell that story and then elevate the brand as well. And so Mm. those would be the two types of clients that we work with and that we love. And then if you're in crisis, we don't want to tell you what kind of client they are because they, we keep that under the NDAs. But we can also help you push back on reporters, do all the things that we did when I was a White House correspondent and covering politics. I know how crisis is covered. I know what they're looking for. I know the gotcha questions. I get what their mind is. And we can help you diminish the coverage, maybe get no coverage, redirect the coverage manage the coverage if it's bad. We do all that. But that's the clients there are are kept quiet. Wow. Super cool. So we know who your ideal client is now. People want to be thought leaders was the way that you first framed it. And the second type is someone who or is an owner or a founder looking to get press on their story yep. to help grow the brand. So love those. Is there a dream client out there? You think of, I look at them and that's the dream client for me? For me, I'm just looking for people who get the fact, and this is part of my job as a founder, right? You have to educate Mm -hmm. clients and potential clients. It's very important to people, to me, that people understand that public relations is not like a sales silver bullet. And so I love all my clients. There's no like dream client. If you have budget and you get that this is a long-term investment and you have a story that's TV worthy, you're my dream client. Yes. And so I think so I see red flags in potential clients. For me, I always say we choose our clients as much as they choose us. For me, I've had a conversation with, a, I remember I had a conversation with a client. She said, Can we try to do minimum six month contracts. So yes. we do one month. And if I get that sale from the placements, I could pay for the next month. And I say, this is not the right time to invest in public relations. There are a lot of great clients that I would love to work with. It's fun to work with people who haven't done much press yet, but have all of the right pieces. It is a little more challenging when you take over for somebody that maybe had a bad experience with a PR agency, and then they want you to write all the wrongs or something like that. So it's a very long-winded answer, but no Mm -hmm. dream client really just They understand that we're building credibility over time. They have all of these studies for advertising that say you have to see the commercial 10 times or 10 times before you would buy the product, right? And you still have to be the right customer for the product. They should do those kinds of studies with media placements for press because 
it's, it is the same concept. You, there is the understanding that the placements we do have a greater impact because they're earned media versus a commercial where the difference between the used car commercial or the doctor who's being interviewed on the news, you're like, oh, well, that doctor must be really smart. The news is having him on versus I paid for the commercial. So I think that we create credibility faster than with paid ads, but it's still a slow process right? So you can't expect like a month of PR to change your sales pipeline. And if you do, you're not the right fit for PR. But if you get that we are increasing your credibility, we're building your brand awareness, we're creating great content from you from all these media placements to increase loyalty with your current customer base to have more reason to come back and to see how established you are. You are a great client. And then, oh, you happen to be an expert in a field that's really popular and talked about in the news or that people are interested in or super trendy or whatever it is, then let's go. I'm ready. For- Absolutely. Veronica, how can we find out more about you? Where is the best place to find you, to follow you, to get in touch with you? Give us your places we can find you, please. So I married my husband for many reasons, but one was I thought Cleary was such an easy name. Unbeknownst to me, Cleary autocorrects <laughs> clearly on all computers. So just one number one, visit us at Cleary Strategies, but make sure it doesn't autocorrect. It is C-L-E-A-R-Y, clearystrategies.com. That's where all of our information is. And you can find me on pretty much all social media platforms at Ronica Cleary. And from there, in all of my bios is a link over to the Cleary Strategies social pages as well. We're pretty active on social. You can see examples of our client wins. You can see the type of placements we do. We put it all out there. Every month we put graphics of all the outlets where our clients were placed. No secrets, no Mm -hmm. hiding behind fake numbers. We have a slower month. We don't care because it's not a reflection of our work. It's just a reflection of the market at that time or the media landscape. And so we just put one out yesterday. And so if you're curious about what does a publicist do, where do they get placements? You can see all of that on our agency pages and you can see the types of TV hits and magazine placements and podcasts and all that stuff that we do. It's pretty active and we'd like that to be a sales tool for us. It's a fantastic sales tool because I'm looking at it right now and it is in depth and it's personal and there's pictures and it's visually very stunning. Clearystrategies.com. I like to go first thing anytime I go and look at someone's website, go meet the team and see what their values are. So I'm looking at your meet the team. This is great. I love all the pictures. And then the mission is right here to serve our clients and to serve the media. And then it goes through leading through a journalist lens. And I love everything about it. So it's a really good first impression seeing you online. This is good. Thank you. It's this always hard to gauge your website, right? Because you created it. I didn't make it, but you're like, hmm, does this look good? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I think it's pretty cool. It's good. <laughs> That's been a real treat. I've got a couple of final up questions just to get your personal flavor on some of these questions I like to ask everyone. One of them is if you're a reader, if you read books on a regular basis, or if there are any books that have had an impact on you and your world, what might be one or two books that have impacted your life? I actually just read, I think last month, I just read The Four Agreements. It's one of those books that I feel like everybody talks about. And you're like, I, I was at a bookstore. I was at the Public Relations National Conference. And I went to a bookstore with some people. And I said, this book is, sitting, I need to read this book. If you're not familiar with it, it's a way to think about life and guide you through life, I think, to be more successful. And the, I think the most popular of The Four Agreements is Don't Take Anything Personally. 
when you read it, it's such a great reminder that most of the time it's about them. It's not about you. I love that reminder. That was my favorite takeaway from that book. I read a lot of books by female small business owners. Like in my network, there's a lot of people that self-publish or they don't self-publish, but maybe they're lesser known authors. And I could give a plug to one of my clients. Uh, She wrote a great book, One Bold Move a Day. Her name is Shauna. Okay. And it's a great book about this concept, take one bold move a day. And she takes you through how that can change your life. But with that, what brought that to my head is I like to read books of potential clients. It's a great sales and networking tool. And so if I see someone in my network that's written a book, I'll read the book and I follow up and I send them five or six points that I loved about the book. And I don't give them a hard sell on PR, but I just want them to know that's the type of engaged publicist that I am. Like you haven't even secured my services and I'm thinking about your book. I'm thinking about how we might place it. I'm thinking about what's interesting about it. And I'm also just supporting you as a female founder. I'm certainly young men. They don't have to be women, but they could be men too. I, a lot of women in my circle, I say, we work with female businesses. I'm like, I work with all businesses. I don't care, but I read those books too. I don't know. I, Hopefully those are some good examples. Both of those books were great. It's a great example. I love the name, One Bold Move a Day. Can you repeat her name? Shauna. Like she always says Shauna like Donna. Uh, Shauna Hawking. S-H-A-N-A. Here. Oh my gosh. She's going to. There we go. Let's see. I have this pile. You got it? You got a visual for us? All right. Oh my gosh. This is great. Look at you. I'm doing my work. I'm always doing my work. So this is the book. And you can see, it's funny. I know you said maybe when I read these books, I tab everything that could be a potential news angle. And then that way I can go back when I'm like, okay, what can we pitch here? What can we do to make her newsworthy this month, right? Or whoever it may be. But like I said, now I like to do this with people who aren't necessarily my clients, right? Because I just think it's a great way to connect with people and to support people and to learn about people. And then also sometimes on a rare occasion, I have read a book where I think, oh, I don't really want this person to be my client. (laughs) It's all very helpful. And I don't know. And here's, oh, here we go. Look at me with all these plugs. This is another one of our clients, the ultimate guide, okay. A to Z of non-toxic, of A to Z of detoxing. Wow. You got to look at the YouTube video, those of you listening. This is super cool. She's showing uh, some really cool books. Thank you, Ronica. Sophia Goucher, she's a non-toxic living expert. Again, though, the nice thing about this little part of the conversation, I know we're wrapping up, is Your listeners also see we represent a wide range of experts. That's why I say really industry agnostic from a author about thinking about one bold move a day to non-toxic living expert. But those are all topics and everything in between that they talk about on TV. So that's why I also wanted to share those just because you get a feel for who we represent in the wide range of clients. No, I love it. If you have any more sitting right there next to you, feel free to show more. I'd love to tag (laughs) them all and give all of them some press. (laughs) So thank you for sharing your books. And I love it because I actually have the four agreements on the shelf. I love it. And the one that really stuck out to me was be impeccable with your word. It like kind of connects you back to my dad. And yeah, this, that was always the thing. Yes. It's such a great one. There, It's a great book. I highly recommend it. It's a very easy read. It's also, didn't you find it was a bit, I don't know if this is the right word, but a bit cold. Like it was just like a reminder that we don't need to be, talk to with kid gloves. He talks about the world is a cold place and this is a way to get through it and change it and make it less cold. And I thought, wow, no one ever talks to us like that. We're so protected and covered in bubble wrap and 
No one ever just, yes. I, I loved that about the book. I remember I've read the first few pages. I'm thinking this guy's, he doesn't, he say you're living in hell. I think he says that in the book. And I thought, what a nice way to be spoken to. Not like I need to be protected and given all this nice little watered down. Tell it like it is. And I really thought it was a, a great book. It's successful for a reason. But sometimes you read things and you're like, why is this so popular? I didn't feel that way when I read it. I love that you have it. And I love that the books that you've shown are just littered with sticky notes and bookmarks of where you have things in them. And I love that about it, too, because I have that on my books, too. Just, I'm fond of your book strategy and the way you think about books, Veronica. Let's keep moving to music. If you are a music person, then what might be a song or an artist or a genre or something that really fills your bucket and inspires you in some way? Gosh, I don't have a favorite. I love music. I'm a piano player. I love a lot of types of music. I don't know. I love jazz. Like I was just listening to ACDC in the car yesterday. I like Taylor Swift. I like a lot of music. I just, of I love is sharing music with my kids and watching them explore music. I, like for example, we're driving in the car and my kids say, oh, it's a cotton candy sky. Or they'll say, look at the skies, all these colors. And then I pull out orange colored sky. And I'm like, oh, you got to listen yes. to this old song, right? So for me, I know that's a lame answer that I don't have a favorite band, but I love music and I love sharing music with them. And also just making sure that I show them music that they might never be exposed to. Now my kids are like, oh, like that song, orange colored sky. And I'm thinking, yes, you are the coolest five-year-old. <laughs> that's my answer. I love the music. And by the way, you just, you just hit the nail on the head with me because you said ACDC and I have a, a ritual. I enter my office every morning listening to you know, Thunderstruck. That's how I literally enter my office every morning to that song dancing. So I'm, I'm glad that you... I've seen them twice. Oh, awesome. Yeah, it was awesome. I give my husband some credit for exposing me to ACDC, but I like it. I listen to it now. Sweet. So side topic real quick. You've mentioned your husband a couple of times and you've known him and been together with him for half your life. I can't I've not been with my wife for half my life. I've been with her our 10 year anniversaries in January okay. and basically we've known each other for 12 years okay. and you've known him for half your life. What's the origin story of your husband? How, what was that first date? How did you guys oh. initially connect? <laughs> we met at a frat party when I was waiting in line for the bathroom. How's that for honesty? <laughs> wow. Awesome. Awesome. We were both dating other people. And my husband said to me, look, I like you. I don't want to get your number because I have a girlfriend. And if I'm ever going out with you, I want you to know I won't be getting other women's numbers. And I was like, oh my God, I'm in love with you. Who is this person? Nice. And then, so we actually met when I was 19. Life brought us back together a year later and we went on our first date and we were together from the first date. It was just, you just knew. Oh, super cool. Super cool. Maybe that helps us with the answer to our last question. Because that was that that was a heartwarming, eternally heartwarming story for me. So thank you for Don't sharing. Worry. Last question: highs and lows. Don't worry. <laughs> Don't think it's all perfect. It's not all butterflies and unicorns. <laughs> I can relate to that too. Uh, I hear you. And never but always and always building and, and, and eternal optimist podcast is the name of our show. And I like to give you the last word and share when I say the words eternal optimist. What might that mean to you, Ronica? So this might not seem obvious, but to me, I think it is a part of being optimistic and how you live your life. My mantra that I like to repeat often, I say the world is small and life is long. Treat people how you want to be treated. 
don't always go in things with a deal in mind or trying to get something out of it. Just treat people right. They'll lead with an open heart. And that's that the world is small and life is long. I think it's counter to the way we're always told, oh, the world is so big or life is so fast. Oh, no, the world is small and life is really long. Do it right, do it with integrity, do it with courage and honesty and kindness. And to me, that's all optimism.